Welcome to the FDF Podcast, passionate about food and drink. My name is Tim Rycroft. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at FDF. And over the next hour, with the help of some of my expert colleagues, we're going to take you through all the issues that are currently high on our radar, and we hope high on your radar too. Uh, amazingly, we still have uh, over 250 people registered for today's webinar. So even in the depths of August, it's clear that there is uh, considerable interest in and appetite for this. So uh, so the things that we're going to cover today, still, uh, still some COVID-19 uh, updates that we need to give you. And that will be with myself and my colleagues from Scotland and Wales, David and Pete. Then we're going to move on and talk about Brexit and international trade uh, with a particular focus today on the developments on Northern Ireland. Uh, which you may be aware of in the last few days. Uh, we're going to have an update on today's hot news uh, speech by the uh, Health and Social Care Secretary, Matt Hancock, only a couple of hours ago uh, at the Policy Exchange Think Tank, in which he has set out his thinking about the future evolution or revolution to Public Health England. And Kate will take you through what we know from that, uh, though I have to say it wasn't a speech that was enormously heavy on detail. Uh, and then when we've gone through that, we'll get to Ian, our Chief Executive Ian Wright, will uh, give you his uh, observations about what's going on in the food and drink industry at the moment. And let's move straight on to an update on COVID-19 issues. So our last webinar, uh, for those of you who were with us, was on August the 4th. And and since then, uh, two days after that, uh, we had an extension to the list of countries uh, from which travellers to the UK will have to quarantine. Belgium, the Bahamas and Andorra were added to the list. We also had uh, a piece of work from the Bank of England that said that they thought that the impact of COVID-19 was now going to be less severe than they had originally thought, but that the impact on the economy would take much longer than they had first thought to recover. So less severe, but over a longer period. The following day, we had the news that the reproduction rate, the R number for the COVID-19 virus had risen nationally to between 0.8 and 1. One being, of course, the important point at which it starts to grow um, as more people infect uh, more people. Uh, it was said that it was believed to be above 1 in certain parts of the country, notably London, the Southwest and the Northwest. On the 8th of August, we had an extension of the mandatory use of face coverings in England to more indoor venues, uh, notably cinemas, but also some other ones, and indeed in Scotland. And then on the 9th of August, uh, for the first time since June, we had uh, an excess of a thousand daily COVID-19 infections uh, being notified. It's interesting to note that uh, the figure for yesterday was 713. So uh, although there was a little uh, series of days when we had over a thousand uh, new cases notified, that figure has now gone down. And of course, it isn't entirely clear to what extent uh, the growth in new infections being detected is as a result of more testing being done or whether it only reflects an increasing prevalence of the virus in society. On August the 11th, uh, we had confirmation of what I think everybody had known, that there had been a massive impact on employment as a result of COVID-19 and the, uh, the measures to uh, lock down and stop large parts of the economy. The number of people in work fell by 220,000 between April and June, which was the largest drop recorded in a decade. Also on that date, uh, in what turned out to be uh, a rather prescient move, the Scottish Government announced uh, that they were going to accept uh, teacher assessments for hires grades uh, rather than the officially predicted grades, uh, a measure that was at the time uh, ridiculed and attacked by the Scottish Conservative Party in a move that they may now uh, think was perhaps not the wisest. 
On the 12th of August, uh, we had, uh, again, confirmation of the economic impact of COVID. GDP shrank by 20.2% between April and June when compared to the first quarter of the year. That's the largest slump ever recorded. And then also kind of significantly on that day in a, in a statistical sense is that we changed the way in which COVID-19 deaths are recorded in this country, uh, in England. Previously, there was this rather curious system in which anyone who'd had a positive COVID-19 test and then went on to die uh, was recorded as being a COVID-19 death. Uh, even if they were hit by a bus. Um, that's now moved, so there's a 28-day cutoff um, after the positive test for you to, to be recorded as a COVID-19-related death in that event. August the 13th, uh, we had the publication of A-level results in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. 36% uh, of results were lower than their teachers had predicted. But at the time, of course, the Department for Education insisted that the uh, Ofqual algorithm that had decided uh, what actual grades were awarded was the fairest and most robust way to do so because it pre prevented grade inflation. Uh, that position, of course, has unraveled over the subsequent days. Also on the 13th, we had further additions to the quarantine list, most notably France. And indeed, we saw some extraordinary scenes of people trying to get back from France and the Netherlands uh, over the weekend. Uh, I gather some people even hired private jets in order to be back in time before the 4 a.m. start of the quarantine. Uh, August 14th, uh, we saw that that spike in cases I talk about continue with 1,400 new cases recorded. On the 16th, Wales became the last part of the UK to end shielding uh, with a message from the First Minister thanking the people of Wales for their forbearance and patience. And it was then on Sunday that we uh, heard via a, a pretty detailed briefing to the Sunday Telegraph that government planned to change Public Health England and that it would be remodelled into a National Institute for Health Protection, modelled at least loosely on Germany's Robert Koch Institute. And Kate will say more about that later. Uh, August of the 17th yesterday, we had EasyJet announcing again uh, in terms of economic impact, closure of some of its operating bases at Stansted South End of Newcastle. Uh, and we had the announcement of the uh, widely expected U-turn on A-level grades. And then this morning, only a couple of hours ago, we had the Health Secretary making the speech about the changes to Public Health England. And finally, not a backward-looking uh, piece of news, but just a reminder from my colleague Mark Harrison that uh, the unwinding of the coronavirus job retention scheme, the furlough scheme, continues. And from the 1st of September, the employer contribution to the scheme will increase to 10% of wages, plus national insurance contributions and pensions auto-enrolment costs. So uh, that's it in terms of COVID updates, uh, in terms of since our last webinar. But let's just hear from our friends in the devolved administrations. David Thompson from FDF Scotland is going to tell you about Scotland. Thanks, Tim. Uh, uh, as Tim said, very, very little here. We're expecting the next legal review of lockdown on uh, Thursday. Uh, but as you may have noticed, there have been uh, local lockdowns, most uh, visibly in Aberdeen, but also uh, in Orkney, and uh, there are clusters, outbreaks in Glasgow. So it means there's unlikely to be drastic change uh, given these local outbreaks and the generally more tentative steps that the Scottish Government has taken. Uh, you may also have noticed there's been the closure of a chicken factory, two sisters uh, in Cooper Angus, uh, due to positive uh, tests in the workforce. Um, the factory has closed down voluntarily, so it's not been closed down by the authorities. Uh, and obviously, they're working to see uh, how the testing plans out in the remainder of the workforce. So it's been a, a very measured uh, approach to this in this particular case. 
Uh, but that's all really of note from Scotland uh, this time around. So I'll pass over to my colleague Pete Robertson to talk about Wales. Thank you, David. Um, since the, since the, the last webinar, actually, although the COVID recovery plan had been announced and then live in target areas with their support, I just thought it was worth highlighting some specifics because a lot of the items on there are as you would expect in terms of requirements. So there's some specific aspects of Wales. So affordable finance available through Development Bank of Wales, that's something, but it's very much targeted on sustainable coast post-COVID businesses. It's just a shout out really for members to engage with the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act and prosperity for all. As we go forward, the Welsh Government I think is going to put that more at the centre of its asks of industry when it's looking for support, as it's going to look to support businesses that are generating more what they would consider value-added products. Uh, there's a detailed action plan. I mean, these are there's no there's no KPIs, there's no timing for this, there's no specific delivery plan. That's being worked on. But what's also being worked on is um, a pestle analysis. I just thought I'd put that up there because it's quite an interesting way to understand the risk as a risk analysis tool to understand what your business has to encounter moving forward. The types of things they're looking at is in terms of Brexit, in terms of supply, storage, um, um, currency, things of that nature, and obviously Christmas. And, and it's just a tool that it would be worth looking at if you want to try and model the challenges you may face ahead. Otherwise, um, FDF Cymru are going to represent food manufacturing and the agri-food evidence scenario subgroup. So a long-winded title, effectively, it's looking at Brexit risk assessments from various different aspects of the industry. And if anyone has any specifics to raise, please don't hesitate to drop them through to me. As I would say also in terms of the consultations, the apprenticeship consultation was extended from the end of July to the end of August, and there's still a call out for Brexit readiness that we would appreciate some support on. So as where we are at the moment, that's it for me, and I'll now hand over to my colleague Jane as we move to Brexit. Uh, to recap on the developments since our last webinar, um, probably the most significant development was on August the 7th, and Dominic will tell you a little bit more um, about this in a few moments. But Michael Gove, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, and, his, and the uh, Northern Ireland Secretary, Brandon Lewis, visited Northern Ireland and launched the new funding for the Trader Support Service and gave more detail, not all the detail we need, but more detail on how the NI protocol is intended to operate. On the 12th of August, the Scottish Government published their, their assessment of the uh, risks that they perceive from the UK government's internal market white paper. FDF has now submitted its response to Bayes, um, and if you would like more detail on that, then we can send that round. On the 13th of August, uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, met the new Irish Prime Minister, Mikhail Martin, at Hillsborough Castle. This was a rather positive readout from the, from the meeting, um, as an FDF colleague suggested. Uh, people are generally more bowled over by the Prime Minister when they first meet him and then obviously they realise that possibly the detail is not quite there be behind the rhetoric. Uh, but the teacher suggested a landing zone for talks was in sight um, and also warned about the risks of a no-deal Brexit or a sub-optimal trade agreement. Um, number 10 in subsequent remarks stressed that they still desired a deal but not at any price. Separate remarks that day, the Prime Minister reiterated his position that Northern Irish businesses will maintain unfettered access to the UK market in his infamous quote, there will be no border down the Irish Sea over my dead body. Uh, in what was a very busy day, also on 13th of August, uh, we saw the announcement that the US would hold off extending the damaging tariffs to goods 
such a shortbread in the ongoing trade subsidies dispute. However, Scotch whisky and uh, various other UK and EU products do remain affected. And as you'll see, the, the coverage of this and whether our trade secretary, Liz Truss, is doing enough to fight back with the US um, obviously remains high in the media. UK chief negotiator ahead of the new round of talks starting today tweeted his assessment is that agreements can be reached in September. So again, another positive message, um, but clearly major issues do remain. He reiterated as well in his tweets uh, that the UK is asking for no more than the EU has already granted to countries such as Canada in that trade deal. And also on the 13th of August, FDF launched our new priorities paper um, on what we're looking for from the UK-EU preferential trade agreement. It was shared widely with stakeholders across government. Um, we've had quite a few remarks already um, from politicians and officials, and it was picked up in the media by Politico and Business Insider. And on the 17th of August, uh, the e EU Financial Services Commissioner warned the City of London that it won't know until next year um, exactly what access rights um, it will have to the EU27's financial markets. Um, and this means a rather arduous job for uh, UK authorities who would need to go country by country to the relevant regulator. Um, and while not seeming directly relevant to food and drink manufacturing, it's another sign of a major area that, that is still under question for early next year. So what's next? As I mentioned just before, the talks kick off as, as always with the, um, the dinner for the chief negotiators tonight. This time it's in, in Brussels. They are exempt from the, the current Belgian quarantine. Um, the talks uh, officially begin between the various teams tomorrow. Um, we will see more on trading goods, but that's, that's all that we've, we've seen in advance. Maybe we'll see more uh, leaking out tomorrow. Um, Talks will continue for the rest of the week. Um, if they go well, there should be a brief roundup from the chief negotiators on Friday morning. Um, next week, we're expected to see them continue talks between the, the teams informally to try and make progress, particularly in those areas of um, the level playing field and dare I say fisheries, which remains a, a major issue. Um, 28th of August, crucial date. If you've not submitted views to our Brexit survey, we really need to hear from you. This will be absolutely vital in terms of giving our views um, in September, and it's really important that we know what you think. So if you, one person from each company will have received it. If you've not received it, we know people are away, then, then do drop either uh, me a line or Dominic a line. We'll make sure you get that. The following week, 31st of August, bank holiday week, uh, we should see more informal talks um, with another formal round on the 7th of September and possibly round nine, what would be the final round on the 28th of September. Um, and obviously we will see if David Frost is correct to say, we will see the progress we need uh, come September. And a quick reminder, obviously crucial date, 15th, 16th of October, it's the European Council. Uh, that's the EU 27 leaders meeting. Um, November, December, we would need that period to either ratify the deal to get it through the various parliaments and prepare obviously as much as we can to implement it or we will see a scaling up of readiness both on the UK side and of course on the EU side to be ready to trade on the WTO terms. On the 31st of December the transition period ends 
And the 1st of January, huge raft of changes, the Northern Ireland Protocol comes into force. Again, whether a deal or no deal, the new UK immigration system, and we will see the first phase of the UK border operating model entering into force, followed by SPS controls from the 1st of April, and full customs in the SPS border from the 1st of July. And now over to Dominic to tell you a little bit more about the Northern Ireland details. Thank you, Jane. Uh, so I have a number of updates on the trade side today, and I'll kick off with the Trader Support Service, which was announced just over a week ago. Uh, with a package of information on uh, trading arrangements for Northern Ireland published by uh, the government. With the Trader Support Service, they set out a government tender for a new IT system that will help businesses to complete uh, the customs, safety and security declarations for goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. We've uh, had a good look at the government's announcement and we found this uh, a bit more useful detail in the tender notice that has been published and is hidden away in the darkest depths of uh, the gov.uk website and provides a little more information that is of use. Uh, the Trader Support Service essentially provides two functions, firstly around education and secondly completing processes. Um, we would summarise it as essentially the government creating a very large customs agent to support uh, uh, movements of goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland and as a result you may have seen in the press some noises coming out of the world of uh, customs agents and trade intermediaries who are not at all happy that government is stepping into their territory. In terms of education, uh, it will provide uh, information on end-to-end -end processes uh, for businesses. It will help businesses understand what the Northern Ireland Protocol actually means to them and the new processes that will be required, for example, getting an URI number. It will provide support for businesses to be able to accurately provide required information to uh, allow the trade support service to submit customs, safety uh, and security declarations on the trader's behalf, including information on which goods are considered at risk. Uh, and it will also provide advice to businesses on further licenses and requirements that traders will need to complete to move their goods. So that would include SPS documentation. As far as completing processes are concerned, the uh, TSS will need to be able to submit customs declarations to the new customs declaration service uh, and also submit the required uh, safety and security declarations to the import control service. And the notice uh, the tender also indicates it will have its own financial guarantee, duty deferment account and uh, customs authorizations uh, and will represent most traders indirectly. So largely we think this sounds good, but we do have some significant gaps in information, as is usually the case. We understand that the uh, uh, GVMS Goods Vehicle Movement Service will still be needed by businesses. So uh, companies will have to provide the system with information to fill out the customs declaration, commodity codes, customs value, methods of travel and so forth. Uh, and the TSS will complete the forms uh, and upload to the Customs Declaration Service. Businesses will then need to get a reference to enter into GBMS to be able to pre-lodge all the required declarations before goods move to Ireland. It also isn't clear if the system will be digital or if there will be a team of customs experts actually on hand that will be doing uh, the hard work to ensure forms are filled in correctly and to be able to offer advice. So we're seeking clarity on that. Uh, and finally, 
as it stands, it's not yet going to support SPS controls, but we feel, given the volume of food and drink traveling across that border, that it is vital that SPS controls are included within the processes part of, of the system. So uh, it's something we are talking with government about and urging them very strongly to incorporate. Alongside the trade support service, uh, government set out some further information on specific trade flows under the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, firstly, for Northern Ireland GB, they've continued to hold the line that there will be unfettered access, as Jane said, uh, with trade continuing as it does now, no additional paperwork or processes being required. For GBNI, we've obviously had the trader support service. For goods moving from Northern Ireland to the Republic, uh, there will be no changes, no paperwork, tariffs or checks, given the uh, Northern Ireland status as part of uh, the uh, single market, effectively. And finally, for Northern Ireland trade with the rest of the world, they clarified that Northern Ireland will benefit from the UK's trade deals. However, as, as, as is always the case, there is still many unanswered questions in this. Firstly, unfettered access. Uh, what exactly does this mean and how will businesses be able to benefit? At the same time, how can that be delivered while avoiding uh, any risk of goods fraudulently entering GB via Northern Ireland? Uh, secondly, um, there remains the question about goods that will be classified as being at risk and will therefore face a tariff on entry into Northern Ireland. Our working assumption remains that most if not all agri-food and drink will be classified as at risk, but that still needs to be decided. Finally, uh, we still await much of the essential detail on food and, uh, food and drink specific elements, including on SPS requirements, not least whether heat-treated pallets will be needed for goods moving from uh, GB to Northern Ireland. Uh, we are currently working with our counterparts in Ireland and Northern Ireland, producing a number of infographics that bring to life these different uh, uh, trade flows uh, and we are mapping that out uh, with all the detail that we have so far and hope to share that with members in the very near future. We are uh, currently in the process of pulling together a fairly top line response to a cabinet office consultation looking at future borders in 2025. Government is looking beyond the post-transition border operating model and has stated its aim of creating the world's most effective border by 2025. Uh, in our top line response, we're planning to use some of the elements that we've included in our recent trade paper uh, as highlighted on the slide in front of you, particularly uh, ideas around the extension of the authorised economic operator scheme to incorporate food and drink specific elements to create an AEO food and drink trusted trader type scheme. Um, we uh, would welcome member feedback and views on any elements that are needed on this, but I think we recognise that given current priorities around the end of transition, this is not uh, a huge priority to be thinking about the borders in 2025 right now. So uh, Jane mentioned earlier in her update that we published our trade priorities paper uh, last week um, uh, and talked a bit about some of the uh, coverage and reception we've had of the paper. Uh, I think we've talked about it before on, on these uh, webinars, but essentially we set out in the paper our concerns that the current nature of the deal looks remarkably similar to that of no deal. While there are benefits in terms of tariffs potentially in the offering, a lot of the requirements that businesses need to undertake are remarkably similar whether it is a deal or a no deal outcome. 
in the paper we've set out a number of existing priorities, notably those around the requirement of a zero for zero tariff still, uh, and our long-standing position on rules of origin. Um, we also look at some of the food and drink and customs order processes that will be needed and set out our recommendations of things that can be done to uh, move things along more effectively in those areas for food and drink. We touch on a number of the urgent regulatory approvals that are needed, particularly those for uh, mutual recognition of organic certification bodies, for uh, uh, exports of products animal origin, and for uh, existing delegations around use of fortified flour in products. Um, and the key part I think that is different that has picked up most of the coverage is around periods of adjustment, which is the seventh recommendation, where we highlight the need for these targeted periods of adjustment where in, uh, complete com compliance on day one will be all but impossible in the time frame we have and with the lack of clarity and information on what will actually be required. Uh, the paper is now available on our Brexit web page both publicly and on our members page and uh, I'm more than happy to discuss further with members if anyone has any queries on that. Uh, on UK trade negotiations, uh, talks continue around continuity trade agreements. Uh, we've heard in the last week or so that a deal with the Ivory Coast is all but done. Uh, and positive talks continue with Canada, Ukraine, Norway and Iceland, uh, with government remaining reasonably confident that deals can be done with a number of these uh, essential markets. In terms of new trade agreements, I think there's been a lot more coverage in the press on that. With Japan, uh, the talks are moving along while well, government intended to secure a deal by the end of July. This date has slipped a little bit, but indications are that a deal should be done in the next few weeks if all goes to plan. Uh, I'm talking with the lead negotiators later this afternoon to give some final feedback around some food and drink elements that remain problematic. And there has been coverage around some of the tariff demands from the UK side with Stilton being picked out as one of what we understand is that a long list of tariffs that they're insisting on improvements for food and drink. Um, with the US uh, talks continue, uh, there was uh, recently what was described as a very constructive third round, uh, and we've heard that the US has shared its offer on rules of origin, uh, which we are, are keen to find out more information on, but understandably government is remaining very tight-lipped, so we've yet to pick up any more detail on that. Finally, um, Australia and New Zealand talks remain at a fairly early stage. And you know, I've seen some press coverage recently of the New Zealand Deputy Prime Minister who's voiced some very strong frustrations with uh, UK government's capacity to do multiple trade negotiations at one time. Pass over to uh, Kate, who's going to talk a bit about the public health of England. Thanks, Dominic. I'm just going to cover a little bit of um, future PHE, uh, while widely trailed in the weekend press, announced by Hancock the setting up of a new National Institute for Health Protection. This has very much been um, set up with COVID as the background, um, and so it is government's thought that bringing together the elements of PHE along with uh, NHS Test and Trace um, will help strengthen our response for the autumn. So much of the speech this morning focused on the NIHP aspect of this announcement, that their focus going forward, which is around infectious disease control, uh, along with any um, external health threats, by which they mean other uh, pandemics. 
Um, so again, as my Wildwood Trail, Harding will be the new um, chair. Michael Brody actually uh, will be the interim CEO of Public Health England going forward. And in terms of what actually happens to the remainder of PHE, which is of course where uh, many of you may have had engagement through uh, various uh, obesity and diet strategies, that was far less clear uh, and really not particularly addressed in um, the speech this morning. So uh, Hancock acknowledged the role that PHE had played in health improvement and that government uh, still saw this as important uh, and the prevention agenda um, and levelling up inequalities all still seen as important and we will be hearing more in coming weeks apparently. Um, so their intention is that they will be consulting uh, widely around effectively how that will be set up and structured with an intention that the levelling up agenda is embedded widely across all government departments, the NHS, local authorities and pharmacies. So make of that what you will. The um, impact on obesity plans then, uh, so obviously it's also a little bit unclear. Um, I think what we would say is that in terms of the recent announcements, so promotions and advertising restrictions particularly being at four there, it seems unlikely that this announcement will have much impact on that. Obviously, uh, they chose to make the announcement in quite a high profile way. It was announced by the Prime Minister and it's a Department of Health and Social Care lead anyway, uh, and jointly with DCMS, where it's the advertising regs. So changes, internal changes to the structure of where elements of the PHE policy sits shouldn't really have that much of an impact uh, on those elements of the strategy. I think with reformulation, that's a little bit, that, that potentially has a bit more impact. Obviously, PHE currently own those reformulation programmes. So it seems likely there will be a delay there. Having said that, the reformulation programmes have gone through successive governments and also uh, a wide variety of uh, structures. For those of you who have worked on this for quite a while will know. And so certainly we have had reformulation programmes through the Food Standards Agency, through Department of Health as it was then, then onto PHE. They've been structured in different ways, they've been monitored in different ways. So it seems likely there'll be a delay um, and certainly those programmes that are kind of midway through being developed, so calories in particular I think there, uh, the infant food programme, um, salt possibly, although of course there's already much more of a structure behind salt. But it seems likely that the publication of those programmes will certainly be delayed. But I think it's in the longer term, it would seem likely to me that those reformulation programmes in some form will still continue. Um, so I think with that, Tim, I will hand back across to you. Thank you very much, Kate, and to all of you for your updates today. I'm hoping that Ian joins us. Do you have any observations or reflections before we get into the question? My only observation would be that there's a huge amount going on here in on multiple agendas. I've said that week after week, I think, but I've, I think what we're now seeing is the shape of our activity uh, streams of work, our activities, our streams of work for the autumn, there's going to be a huge amount to do, uh, this is on your behalf as members, 
Uh, and if you're not members, why on earth aren't you members? Hurry up and join because you'll be missing out on uh, the capacity for us to serve you with advice and uh, information in a whole range of different areas. And, and those are really the EU free trade agreement, yes or no. I know last time we were together, our colleague Luke Heindlau um, made the point that there wasn't a huge amount of difference between an EU trade deal or no EU trade deal except tariffs. Uh, and although that is not entirely true, it is the case that, that, that our expectations for that trade deal are increasingly or decreasingly impressive. But uh, also the question of how much friction and how much detail is not yet decided and how much detail won't be even decided on day one on the 1st of January is beginning to become astonishingly pressing. So that's the first area of work. The second area of work is on the whole question of the Northern Ireland Protocol and the impact that that will have on uh, business, both in terms of those businesses doing business with Northern Ireland and on the way in which it impacts the government's thoughts and plans for the UK internal market. The, the delicate balance which the UK has had for probably, I mean, arguably, uh, since the Act of Union with uh, Ireland in 1806, I think, uh, maybe 1801, can't quite remember. Um, we've had a single free trade uh, area for England, Scotland, Wales, and uh, after the independence of the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, that is about to change. And there will not be frictionless trade between all of these different components going forward. So that's a second area of work. Uh, together with the legal implications that that brings. The third area of work for us is on the free trade agreements with uh, the rest of the world, and there are opportunities there, but also threats. Uh, the fourth area, the world's a dangerous place, as Scotch whiskey and uh, shortbread manufacturers have found out recently. The fourth area of work is on obesity. And then we haven't covered today, but uh, still enormous amounts of work to come on plastics and packaging and a whole range of other issues that we haven't discussed for some months. And then in the background to all of this is the COVID recovery and the fact, as we've seen today, the one piece of news that Tim's wrap up didn't cover was 7,000 job losses in the next month at Marks and Spencer's. That's 10% of its workforce. That is a pretty savage cut to one of the country's leading retailers and one that is about to make a major move into food delivery. Uh, and although some of that is kitchen sinking and some of that is rationalization of their not so successful clothes uh, operation, this is a very scary position, I think. Uh, and those of you who've seen Pretz figures recently will see that they're operating at 20% of normal capacity, again, a very scary prospect. And the truth is that no businesses uh, can really uh, survive the starvation of cash that some of our major players in metropolitan city centers are having. Uh, and that is going to be the backdrop to everything we do this autumn. Our first question this afternoon is from Elena Norris. And she asks, is there any FDF resource or support available to FDF member companies to aid the transition into the post-Brexit world. Some examples of challenges we're working through currently are on-pack labelling requirements appropriate for export 
and export stroke customs paperwork where we don't currently have the expertise? Well, we're very happy to, to where we can answer questions and where we can't point you in the direction of those who can provide you with either the answers, and usually that will be us, but also the services. What we can't do, though I did explore this, is whether we should try and become a customs agent. As some of you know, I'm always keen on a commercial opportunity um, and on trying to find ways in which the FDF can survive and grow outside its membership subscription base. Um, I did look at whether we could become a customs agent, and I haven't completely ruled out that possibility in the future. But in the short term, that's not something where we have the skill base to, I can see my colleagues already sighing with horror. We don't have the skill base, but we can certainly help you find the right contacts. And throughout this period, which I think is going to be a lot like the run-up to the three aborted no-deal exits last year, uh, March, April and December, but with the overlay that this time it is going to happen in some raggedy way, uh, I think it's going to be our job not only to answer questions where we can and tell you where we can't, uh, but also to tell you where you can find specific experts or specific expert services that will help you. So the answer to your question is yes, there is FDF resource. We only have a limited number of people. And as I said at the start of this, we've got a whole load of other things that we're having to cover as well. But yes, there will be resource and yes, we will try and answer those questions. And one of the things that we've said to government over the last um, month, as we've been talking to them about this, particularly on the, the EU exit, is there is going to come a point where you have to tell us you don't know the answer and you're not going to. And if that this is government doesn't know the answer and it's not going to before the 31st of December. Where that is the case, we have to tell you. And it may be, and I hesitate to say this, but it may be in those cases where you, where you simply know that you will not get an answer to an important question, you have a choice to make. Do you take the risk and trade or do you decide, as some businesses have already done, to not trade with the EU for the first whatever period? after the 31st of December to allow things to become clear. In those cases, those companies, as I understand it, are moving goods, either ingredients into the UK or Great Britain, sorry, or moving uh, product for export out of Great Britain and Northern Ireland into the EU, maybe to Northern Ireland, maybe to uh, places in Northwestern Europe. Uh, in order to be, in order to have buffer stops on both sides to trade through this period. Are the UK government in a position to claim unfettered access, given the single market status of Northern Ireland? Won't the EU determine this? That is indeed a very tricky question. I think some ministers are very well aware of the complications of the nat of the and the nature of the protocol in its uh, in the form it is currently envisaged. And I think this is why you've seen some particularly virulent anti-EU campaigners who you would have thought had had their appetite sated by the events of the last eight and a bit months with our exit from the EU and the running down of the clock on the transition period. I think that's why you've seen the beginning of a discussion about whether the UK should withdraw from both the Northern Ireland Protocol and the withdrawal agreement, uh, Ian Duncan Smith making that proposal, what, 10 days ago. Uh, I think they've realised that the Northern Ireland Protocol puts upon 
the Johnson government a number of obligations which it may to may decide on reflection are not ones it would have wished to cover. But at the moment, I think it, you're correct to say that the question of who can decide what unfettered access both the EU existing EU 27 and uh, the remainder of GB can have is a moot point and it's one that I suspect won't actually end up being decided by either uh, the United Kingdom government or by the EU. I think it will eventually end up in both the UK, in fact, in the UK courts, in the Northern Ireland courts, and, and the irony of this is uh, extraordinary. I think that ultimately this might be a judgment that the European court makes. And so in the end, all that discussion and anger vented on the European court uh, may end up being, as it were, adjudicated by the court itself. Uh, do we know if the UK government will continue to adhere to the EU list of approved countries for the purposes of products of animal origin, in particular thinking of composite products containing dairy? Might we be able legally to import from countries such as Mexico or Brazil after January the 1st? Those countries are currently unapproved. Dominic, do you know the answer to that question? I certainly don't. Uh, I'm afraid I don't. I think that's one we'll have to uh, speak to our DEFRA colleagues about and come back to you with an answer. Yeah, I, it's not one that's been raised particularly in relation to composite products. It's not one that's been raised, or presumably composite loads as well. Uh, it's not one that's been raised with me um, or that I recall, and although I don't always know the answers to these questions, I can usually remember what we've talked about at these negotiations with government or discussions with government and exchanges with government, particularly with DEFRA, uh, where I tend to be the one in the lead. And I don't recall that coming up, but what we will do is we'll raise that with DEFRA colleagues and we'll make sure that A, you get the answer as long as we've got your details, which I imagine, Tim, we do have. And um, we'll uh, also make sure that the answer to that question is prominently posted on the FDF website. And if necessary, we'll come back to that in two weeks' time when we next meet. I will ensure that one of my colleagues, uh, I'm sure, will have taken down Lucy's details to make sure that we can answer your question, Lucy. Um, those are all the questions for now, Ian. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining us and thank you to my colleagues, Kate, Dominic, Jane, David, Pete, uh, and especially Tim and uh, Mandeep and Shabazz who are behind, as it were, the, the uh, way in which this is produced. They're, they're not exactly operating the cameras and doing the sound, but they're making sure this all happens. Um, and thank you to all of you for listening. And if you're listening on the, web, on the uh, webcast, or the podcast, uh, thanks very much. I just say one thing, I think that, uh, I said this to our FDF, our wonderful FDF team, yes, on yesterday. The next couple of weeks, I suspect, will be dominated by the arguments over um, A-levels and the argument we're about to have over GCSEs may well be uh, able to eclipse the A-level uh, argument. And I think, that will rumble on through the weekend, almost certainly, and we'll see if um, uh, anybody has to walk the plank as a consequence of this. You, you'd think that the senior officials of Ofqual, of, Ofqual might well be already packing their bags and examining their CVs on the basis that they'll be the ones thrown over the side. But I do think that one thing is quite important, it's a quite important lesson out of all of this. 
Um, and it also follows some of the COVID stuff as well. The truth is this government is more prepared to make changes even to quite core activities than most. This is not a government which hangs on except to very key personnel, but it's not a government which hangs on to policies when it's clear they're unsustainable. You might argue that they could have taken the A-level decision as soon as the Scottish government saw the writing on the wall, but anyway, they did do it pretty quickly. There was, under the May government, this kind of length, there'd have been a lengthy, all-week agony as, as decisions were ducked and then taken. Um, this, 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 this government acted reasonably decisively and Gavin Williamson has been left uh, to take the flak, but he does know at least what he's taking the flak for taking a decision, not as in the past taking the flak for not changing the decision. That gives you a pointer to what might happen on a whole range of issues as we go through the autumn. If, the, if it looks like the great, uh, the great British public, and in particular that bit of it which this government is targeting perfectly legitimately, are up in arms about a particular policy, then the policy may well get changed. And some of the things that we're talking about on these calls, particularly in relation to access to products uh, in different parts of the country and uh, seamless movement of products uh, in and out of the country could well become those sorts of issues. So it's going to be a, a pretty much a roller coaster ride over the next few months. Uh, we will do our best, our very best, to uh, guide you through it to the first question we had to try and answer the questions where we have people who know the answers and where we don't. We will do our very best to point you in the right direction. What I recommend to you over the next couple of weeks before we meet next is take the opportunity of the of the holiday break if you have one i know parts of the country don't have one but take the opportunity of the holiday break because there isn't going to be much respite for any of us after the bank holiday and into the autumn and it will be a question of hold on to your hats as we go through the next three or four months uh, but we will do our best to ensure that if your hat blows off we can provide it back for you or at least tell you where to get another one. Thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. FDF is the voice of the food and drink industry, supporting our members with the expertise to develop, grow and strengthen their business. To learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.inquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.